You know, as I was thinking back this week on 2021 and all the different things we've, we've done and we've taught, and I was just thinking particularly along Sunday mornings and, and Wednesday nights and, and Elevate and children's ministry, like we really had a year of really looking deeply at what we believe, why we believe it, how do we apply it in our lives, and just thinking through all of them, just to give kind of a recap was firstly, I mean, we did first and second Peter. That took the majority of the year on Sundays, right, where we looked at everything from, remember, that was written to the people who were exiled. You know, how do you respond when you're in a place of exile with your faith? How do you walk through that? How do you deal with errors in the church? And we took a good bit of the year going through that, which was amazing. We had our Reformation series that was rather quick, that really dialed in on what we believe with regards to salvation, that our salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ, through the Word of God, and to the glory of God in all things that we do. We looked at most recently the letters to the seven churches. Wow, right? Right? Each week, just seeing the Lord speak specifically to His church, some of them commendation, but mostly strict and stern words to the church, but really helping us to focus on what matters most ultimately. Pastor Dom on Wednesday nights was Elevate, Wednesday nights in Wednesday night service earlier in the year, we did the attributes of God. It was an amazing study of looking at all that who God is and why we serve him and why we love him and why we go through what we go through. And then most recently, Elevate did a whole series on the book of books. What does the Bible mean? Where did it come from? Why can we trust it? Right? Because, exactly, the Bible is the way in which the Lord speaks to us. It's the way in which each Sunday we open up and we hear what he has ultimately for us. But what an amazing, and I'm not even going through all of the things we looked at, but that's just looking at the big ones. What a blessing and an honor it was. And I'm so thankful that, first of all, Pastor Ben's commitment to biblical clarity, to preaching it week after week for you guys' heart for loving God's Word. I see all of you meeting in your D groups and your life groups and your women's Bible studies, and everything is centered and focused around knowing more about God through His Word. That's who we are. That's who we will continue to be. That's where we're going to continue to move forward into 2022. You know, we've listed before, what are some of the pillars of our faith here at Living Word? Is that we have a high view of God, that we believe in sound teaching and sound doctrine, walk in lives of personal holiness, And today I'm going to speak to us about having a supreme love for Christ. What does that mean for us to have a supreme love ultimately for Christ? That's what we're going to look at here this morning. And you heard it alluded to in the scripture reading this morning. And we're going to look to God's word in Matthew chapter 22 where he speaks to the greatest commandment of all. That I believe specifically dials into this in our lives. And I want us to look at it in a little bit more detail But as we look at this, I want us to look at it from the standpoint of something that we want to focus on. Something that throughout this next year we're going to focus on. We're going to continue to see, like, we we understand focus, right? Some of us think about maybe clarity of vision. Maybe when you got to get something done, you focus in on it and you you make an emphasis of it. Well, supreme love for Christ is something that ultimately, I believe, needs to be a continual focus in our lives as a believer. Many of you know that I've Got this uh, pseudo-career in motocross racing that I stoked up a couple years ago. And it really is pseudo. Um, But I'm fixing to do my first competition next month. Yes, pray for me. I really don't think it's going to be much of a competition. I really think it's more of just them getting the entry fee from me and you guys getting to laugh at me. But one thing I've learned in all of the YouTube videos I've watched is 
you have to focus on your turns. The turns are critical because the turns are where you make up time. The turns is where you're more likely to fall. The turns are where you're more likely to run into people. So you need to really focus on the turns. But what I've also learned, not only through, not only through watching it, but actually practically doing this, that is if you get too hyper-focused in on a certain element of the turn, you become the turn, right? So the idea is where your head goes is where you go. So if your head goes to the ground, so do you, right? So it's this, it's this really difficult thing to train your body and your eyes to look ahead to the next curve to stay focused on what matters most so that you don't eat it, right? So stay in focus, but there's a priority of focus. If it all goes into one spot, you lose sight, you crash. Well, I think the same thing's true with us in our walk with Christ. It's easy for us to get caught up in, what do I need to do? When do I need to do it? And how do I need to do it? But losing the thing that matters most is that if you don't do any of those things without a supreme love for Christ, it counts for nothing. And that's what we're going to look at as we move through this message this morning. Where are our priorities? And I want us to start kind of just by looking at it real quick. And Paul speaks to the Corinthian church. And at the end of chapter 12, he speaks about the, being the, about the unity of the members of the body. He goes through the list of different gifts that the church has there. But he closes out chapter 12 with this verse, and it says in verse 31, And I will show you still a more excellent way. Well, we know, right then, catches right after that is chapter 13. We all know that chapter 13 is the love chapter, and he's pointing just to that. The more excellent way is that of love. No matter what gifting, no matter where Christ has placed you within the body, ultimately what every one of us has to do is to love well. And not just one another, but primarily a supreme love for Christ. Galatians 5, when it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, what's in that list? Love. It's over and over and over in Scripture. The more excellent way is love. We must be a church that loves. And that's going to start with a supreme love for Christ, which is what I've titled the message today. We understand supreme, right? Highest of rank authority above all. It sets a precedence. It has its position. We, we, we know what supreme means. We think about the supreme court. Why? Because they're the highest court. We think about supreme pizza. I don't know why it's supreme. No, I do know why. Because it's a collection of meat and vegetables. It brings it all together, right? Pizza Hut did that in 1977. Uh, useless fact. Supreme leader, supreme authority. Like We understand what the word supreme means. So when we say we need to have a supreme love for Christ, it should ultimately speak for itself. But as we go through this message, I want us to kind of think through, I want you to be thinking about a couple questions that I don't think are just applicable to 2021. I think it's ones we can ask ourselves at any time during the year. But through 2021, has your love for Christ diminished or decreased? Has your love for Christ actually grown and developed into something, something bigger than it was? Or do you look back and you see it's just completely gone? It's disappeared in 2021. But more narrowly, the question we're going to look at and we're going to answer throughout this message is this. What does it mean for us to have a supreme love for Christ? And how do we do that? How do we walk that out? What does that ultimately look like? How do we keep it our focus? So I believe the first thing, and the first thing we're going to look in this text and our first point is that a supreme love for Christ is essential. 
A supreme love for Christ is essential. It's another word we understand well, right? COVID really brought out that word for us, made it popular. What's essential? Something that is necessary, something that has to happen, something that we can't do without, something that is integral in every part of what we do. So our supreme love for Christ has to be essential. We have to see it as something essential. We have to have a love for God's word to guide us, to walk with us as we go ultimately in our lives. Now, Jesus was getting at this in the heart of the text we're going to look at today. So open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 22. And I want to look at the first section here that we're going to anchor off of this morning. Pick it up in verse 34. And it says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. Now, just to give us a little bit of context there, first of all, there's a parallel passage to this in in Mark chapter 12. So if you're thinking you saw it somewhere else, you did. But this is the week leading up to the Passover. We're getting towards the end of the gospel of Matthew. It says the the Sadducees were just silenced with regards to something to the resurrection. It says that they didn't ask any more questions. But where we pick up here is the Pharisees just need to give it one more shot at Jesus. They got to give it one more shot. Well, you stumped the Sadducees, but I think we can. I think we can get him. I think we could pin him into a spot. So they go for the grand slam right there in verse thirty-six, and they say, "Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law?" Because they know if they can get him off here with regards to what they knew and believe, then they could once again pin him for blasphemy or something like that. But what does Jesus do? He does something that probably they didn't expect. Because you see, what they had done in that time, they had made a list of commandments, 613 of them to be exact, and they each represented a letter of the Ten Commandments. And in that, they had, they had separated, prioritizing them, which ones were more important, which ones were less important. So they were thinking, Jesus is going to come in here and he's going to mess up what, we, what we're telling you is the priority by which these commandments have. So that's what, they're, that's what they're ultimately shooting for. But look what they say. So they say, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds with, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Jesus just makes a beeline for he knew what would have impact on him. Right? The very words of Moses, he quotes to him. One that they would have held ultimately in the highest regard. And not only that, it goes to the Shema, which means to hear. We learned about that earlier this year in the Protecting Our Future series, right? And what does it say there in Deuteronomy 6? Because this is what Jesus would have been alluding to. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. There he goes. Jesus takes them back to the very thing that they would not have been able to really refute. And actually, if you look further in the Scripture, what it says is after this, the Pharisees had been silenced. There was nothing more that they could ask. There was nothing more they could say. Of course, they plot to kill him, ultimately. But that was the one thing from there they had no good response for. And Jesus wasn't trying to dial into all these specific little areas for him, although those are good. What he was trying to show him a picture of is the importance of the whole man being submitted unto God, the whole man being submitted unto Christ and walking in that. The problem is, is they had missed that Jesus was God. The deity of Christ was something that they were unable 
to see. So they were unable to process why they continually attacked him. But how do we know that that's kind of what's going on here? Well, let's look at a conversation that Jesus had with the Pharisees a little bit earlier. We're going to go back to John chapter 8 and verse 42. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. In short, what Jesus is telling them there is, is, if you love God, you love Jesus. If you love Jesus, you love God. It's inseparable. It's not something that you can separate and put one in one pile and one in the other. It was something that had to work ultimately together. And we, and we know that here today. Your love for Christ is essential, and it will be supreme over all other beliefs. It has to be. That's the message of salvation. That's how we come to faith in the Lord is that we accept Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God, the incarnation of God on earth. We just celebrated it yesterday, right? That's what we do. We don't celebrate Christmas, by the way, just one day a year. We celebrate Christmas every day, every week, because it's by the shed blood of Jesus that remission of sins takes place and that you and I are saved. So if you're here today and, and you would say, I believe in God, I love God, it's a very common saying, right? Think about the Pharisees in this context. It's kind of cultural in some ways. All of us have heard, yeah, I believe in God or I love God. And I'm, I, and I'm talking about someone that hasn't come to faith yet, but isn't that a common thing that people would say? Right. It's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty, pretty basic. But there's a couple of problems with that. One, first of all, it, it can be what one thing we call is pluralism that all of these different roads lead ultimately to God. You, you use Christ, and you use this person, and I use this person, but we all end up at God. Well, that's, that's heresy. That's, that's false teaching. That's wrong. That has no saving power, ultimately. So there's something to it he's telling these Pharisees that they need to grasp in their heart that he's God, that the Son of God is the Savior of the world. So I think sometimes... And for those of you here today, I want to take it that don't know the Lord. And there are people here today, as there are every Sunday, that don't know the Lord. And first of all, we're thankful you're here. We're thankful that you get to sit and hear the gospel because Scripture tells us that's the way by which men and women are saved. So if you sit here and you say, well, I believe in God, I, what we would maybe say is that's a high view of God. You, you love God or you think you do. But maybe the problem is, is you've just got too high a view of yourself and ultimately the need for a savior. Because if we view ourselves in, the, in, in that light, that we don't need any help, we don't need any support, we don't need any, I've got it all together, I love God, I'm good, I'll figure it out later, then that means the next part of the gospel with Jesus Christ dying for us on a cross means nothing to you. What has to happen is we've got to see ourselves in correct light with the holy God. That we're not worthy of him in our sinfulness, in our depravity, in our inability to seek him and to love him without the work of the cross. And in that, we make, it a, we make a decision. We accept Christ. And that's how any of us sit here today as born-again believers. Because we accepted the reality and the salvation that took place on the cross, the burial and the resurrection, so that now we can be in right relationship with the Holy God. That's the message of the gospel. So as we look here at this first part, when he initially speaks to him. By exposing that where their love wasn't, that they didn't love Christ, he's ultimately exposing the sinfulness of their hearts, which does the same thing for you and I. 
So when the supreme love for Christ is essential in our lives as a believer, I believe there's a second thing that takes place. And I believe that second thing is that a supreme love for Christ exposes sin. A supreme love for Christ exposes sin. The gospel message, when we open up God's word, when we sit, when we listen, when we're taught to it, it lays bare our hearts. Ephesians 4.12 says what? It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. That's what it does. Before, before it actually heals and restores, it cuts like a scalpel. It makes a precise cut, opens it up, exposes it to what's wrong with it so that the word of God can speak to it. So when we have a supreme love for Christ, and one way you can know that is that sin is exposed in your life. And you respond with repentance. For us as true believers in the sanctifying work of the Lord is when we can see and reveal and understand the sin in our lives, knowing that this Holy Spirit dwells within us is at work. Has the Lord been faithful to expose some of those areas in your life? Do you like it? No, of course we don't, right? But it's good for us. It's an assurance of our salvation, right? It's discipline from, the, from our God, from the Lord, from the creator of all of the universe. Look here what they respond in Mark, Mark's uh, version of this in chapter 12. In verse 32, we're going to pick up of the greatest commandment, and they respond. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. Now, this is right after he's given them that commandment. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no one besides him. And to love him with all of our heart, with all of our understanding, and with all of our strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifice. So he's seeing the difference between the Levitical law and everything that was there and what he's emphasizing for God. But in 34, and when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So we see a hint there of some genuine belief from that scribe. But he's not, but he's not quite there, right? He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But here's the thing, not far is still not there. He still hadn't grasped in his heart what it meant to have a love for Christ, that Christ was the God-man, the Savior that they had been awaiting for centuries and centuries and centuries. When our hearts are laid bare, when we open up God's Word, when someone speaks into our heart, when the gospel goes forth, there's only really one response. And I pray for us it would not be a wise response or a wise saying, but it would be one of repentance. Repentance is the key when when sin is exposed in our life. We are to repent from sin. Mark 1.15 says this, and Jesus is starting off his ministry in Mark there. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's repentance. A supreme love for Christ evokes repentance in our hearts. It brings us to a place of knowing that, God, I have sinned against you. But yet I don't want to walk like this. I don't want to do this any longer. May we daily confess and repent. Because is not the struggle with sin real? Do we not something we deal with on a day-to-day basis, personally, interpersonally? 
It never ends. It's relentless. The pursuit of sinfulness never stops. But the Lord has equipped us to be able to fight for that, to be able to walk in that. You know, and I stand here today, you sit there, and we all have different experiences of what sin has looked like for in our lives. And it's tough. And I believe for the rest of our lives, we're going to continue to deal with it. Just as Pastor Ben alluded to pre-service, and we're talking about this idea of, you know, what was 2021 like? And it was a roller coaster ride, and we experienced this. Well, I think what I'm coming to understand is that we probably say that at the end of every year. Like there's always something. There's always something that's there to get you. And I understand Hurricane Ida was different. I understand COVID was different. But then there's something else. There's something else that constantly keeps poking at us. I think Paul says it best when I think about this in Romans seven fifteen. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. How many of you have been there? I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Right? You know, I think about that regularly, day to day, when you recount all the things that went on and you think about your, your conversations, and you're like, why did I say that? Why did I do that? And some of us are saying that while we're saying it or while we're doing it, right? It's real. It's there, right? When we set our mind, and, and, and when Paul's talking about there, he's comparing this idea of the law of God and the law of sin. Both of them are laws. Which one are we going to submit to? What's the law of God? that we would walk in that ultimately with a supreme love for Christ. And that may be our heart's cry. Oh, God, forgive me for sinning against you. Quickly draw me unto repentance. Quickly bring me to a place of saying I'm sorry and then showing I'm sorry. In our home, we got this from someone. We call it tangible repentance. You got to say something, and then you got to do something. Right? Something different. Whatever I did in wrong, I got to turn around and figure out a way to do it. In right, because our actions solidify our words and show where our heart really is. Our supreme love for Christ breeds repentance and repentance, obedience to his commands. Obedience to his commands. I love John 14, 15. It says, if you love me, what? You know it. You will keep my commandments. Notice that the love, and that comes before the command. Because the love is the indicative. It's, the, it's synonymous with who we are because of who Christ is in us. Then we get the imperative to obey him. We obey because we first loved. We're not able to obey his commands if we don't first understand what it means to love Christ, to love him at a supreme level. So the question for us is, do we desire to obey the Lord or do we desire to obey our flesh. It goes back and forth, does it not? James, I love what he says here. That he, and he points us to this, to this idea, this picture of the desire that ultimately tempts us into sinfulness. Because remember, what we're looking at is that a supreme love for Christ exposes sin. So how is that sin exposed ultimately in our life? James 1.14 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desires. So I would say if you can trace it back to the desire, you can thwart the sin. You can stop what's about to happen. Trace it back to the desire, and that desire is I can promise you something of self. Something that's self-motivating. Something that gains you distance or moves you along something in your life. Find the desire. Stop the sin 
And I think with that, it's clear that the antidote for sin is a supreme love for Christ. If our desire is to love Christ supremely above all other things, then what, we have no choice but to what? Cast away sin, to hate sin, to not desire to deal with sin, to walk lives of personal holiness. Which is why in our lives as believers, if our love for Christ is essential and we're able to respond in a way in which it exposes the sin in our life and we can be forgiven, then thirdly, a supreme love for Christ will forsake all other desires. A supreme love for Christ will forsake all other desires. Forsake, right? To abandon, to cast off into another direction. Think about it. When you look at the affections of your heart as you've walked with the Lord, have they changed? Things that were most important, things that are no longer important, something that used to bother you, something that no longer bothers you, something you can't believe you used to do but now you don't do, right? This process of understanding, when we look at God's word and it builds understanding in our heart, we begin to develop these convictions, and these convictions are, are in one way is forsaking something and taking something else up. That supreme love for Christ ultimately turned into that, an affection. Where you find yourself years down the road thinking, oh God, I don't, can't believe I ever did that. I can't believe this was ever a struggle to do this. I love the fact that I now can do this. I love that I can now spend time and sit underneath your word. Many of you are here today thinking, man, it is tough to read God's word. I don't like to wake up. I don't, like to, I don't like to open it up. I don't know where to start. I don't know what I'm reading. I read it. I fell asleep. I read it. I have no idea what I'm talking about. But then some of you are here, and, and, and I have conversations with you throughout the week, and you're like, you're not going to believe what I read this morning. I couldn't stop reading. I have to get up even earlier because if not, I don't have enough time. I can't go to sleep at night because I'm reading, right? Think about that. But that's only because of a supreme love for Christ is built in our lives day after day, week after week, month after month. When we look in, back in the gospel here of Matthew chapter 10, he speaks to this idea of forsaking all other desires. And he really goes to an area that's pretty weighty and pretty pointed. And it's in Matthew chapter 10. And I want you to feel the weight of the words that he's saying here. Picking up in verse 34, he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth, I have not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Wow. Strong word, right? But is he not our Lord? This is our Lord's words to us, his church. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Wow. I thought it was peace, Lord. That's what you said when the baby came. This is what's going on here, though. He did come to bring peace. Peace between God and man through the work of salvation. And it says that, it says that there, that he, peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. And we know that what pleases God is our faith. Our faith is what ultimately pleases God. But why is he saying this idea about a sword here? I thought it was peace. Well, look, perfect scenario, there would be peace between you and I and one of another interpersonally if everything was pure and right. But back to our second point, that a supreme love for Christ exposes sin. Well, guess what? That sin is what thwarts the reality of there being peace between one another, which then it becomes what? A sword. 
Because it divides. The truth of the gospel divides. And in this scenario, he's given us here between the very closest of family members. Husbands and wives, mothers and daughters, brothers and sisters. All of that happening there. It brings division to the closest of those relationships. That word there, set, and it says to set against, against, we see it two or three times there. In the original language, is to gozo, to gozo. And what it means is to literally cut into two separate pieces, to sever. It's not just a slight pushing to the side. It's saying that these relationships get severed when these things happen. And some of you have experienced this. Some of you are walking this out right now, and it's tough. It's hard. Why? Because, because we love those people. They're near, dear relationships. They're our own blood. They're our own flesh, things that we share that we can't share with other people. So what's, what's going on here? Is Jesus trying to just tell us to go and just ravage all of the relationships in our lives, particularly the ones that are closest? Of course not. But what he is doing, he's delineating the difference between what is, what is eternal and what is temporal. Back to the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Mark adds in strength. The whole of man is to honor God and to love him well, which means it's the priority, it's supreme in their life. But what it does mean is that a supreme love for Christ and a willingness to forsake one's family, if necessary, it could get to that for us. It may not. But it could be, but do you love the Lord to that point? Do you love the Lord to that end? I was reading some stories this week, because there's plenty of them that people have walked this out in what I would consider some of the most extreme, most extreme conditions. This one girl, she was talking, and from best I can tell from the story, was probably around somewhere in her late teens, maybe early 20s. And she came from a faith that was extremely, extremely restrictive. Right, and one that had nothing, obviously, with love with it. One of just complete, you know, really just abusive in a lot of ways. And the Lord saved her. And they're interviewing her. And she's, she's sharing the story of her testimony. And it was all the things that you would normally hear. And it was pretty straightforward. You know, my dad has shunned me. He won't, he won't talk to me. There's nothing I can do about it. Um, he won't answer my phone calls. If he does answer and accidentally picks up my call, he instantly hangs up the phone. She goes through this whole list of all of the separation that's come, that sword that took place ultimately in her life and her relationship with her dad. So she picks up in that story of all that had just happened with her, with her dad. And I'm thinking, wow, how does one respond to this, what do you do with that kind of, of struggle? And she says, you know, she says, I, I, at first I thought, you know, well, Dad, don't you think you should just be happy that I'm not, you know, on drugs and I'm not chasing men and I'm not doing all these terrible things? And it's like, she said, none of that, none of that mattered. You know, I was thinking I could find some logical way to get him to accept me, a logical way to, to, to realize what was taking place. She said, you know, but what the Lord showed me is that my responsibility was to love him more than I ever loved him before. And that was a testament of a supreme love for Christ in her life. That that sword that took place, that sword, although it came in and separated, it drew her and brought her to a place of deeper love for her father. 
I don't know what happened from there. I'm praying the Lord saved that father. Another one was a story of a young boy. He, got, he came home, accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. His uncle and his brother just commenced a beating on him. Beating on him, knocking him, trying to say, I'm going to hit you until you change your mind. Somehow or another, some way he escapes. But the same story. Yeah, I'm not going to go back over there because I don't want any more of that. But my prayer is that the Lord would save my family. Right? That's what a supreme love for Christ does. Even in the forsaking of one thing, it draws us closer. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Isn't that such an opposite of what normally happens in our lives or what we see take place? Yes, it's dividing, but it's dividing because the truth of the message, the truth of the gospel must do so in order for those to be saved. Continuing in Matthew 10, and what I want us to look at here is there's kind of two sides to this coin of forsaking our desires. And the very first one is, is there's a cost to following Christ, to being submitted to his discipleship. In Matthew 10, verse 37 through 39, it says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is what? Not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's pretty clear. Not worthy of me. Not worthy of me. Not worthy of me. A supreme love for Christ is required in our faith. Interesting, the word for love that's used in all of those right there is the word phileo, which we know means a brotherly love, an affection. Right? And, and phileo love never trumps agape love. It never trumps it. And that's what he's speaking to there. Whoever loves his father with a brotherly affection. But he's getting to this idea is not worthy of me. Once again, don't misunderstand. And by no means advocating or saying you need to go try and figure out a way to create these divisions. These divisions happen on their own. When you walk in truth, when you walk in scripture, when you walk in the ways in which the Lord has ultimately called you. And I know coming out of the holidays, some of you may be feeling even some of the weight of this in your interactions with your family. Right? Some of us have felt this over time because you're, you, you, you've left one church for another. You're, you're, you're fellowshipping separate of your family from some, some sort of division that has taken place. Maybe your family, like those other people, just completely shunned you. They don't want to have anything to do with you. They don't want to talk to you at any level. Maybe you went from hanging out with your family every day to now you rarely even see them. And it's weighing on your, it's weighing on your heart. Maybe some of you have lost family babysitters because of it. I know for us with kids, that hits home, right? If you were close with your family, but no longer have that relationship with them. Maybe even gathering around the holidays, you found yourself, man, I, have, I can't go there. I can't, I can't do this. There's division there that's been caused because of my faith. But I have some encouragement for you. One, because of your faith, the Lord is going to use that to save those family members. We see it all throughout scripture. One person gets saved and the Lord comes in and saves an entire family. I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Some of you may walk out the rest of your faith and only grow relationally further from your family. I pray it doesn't, but it is a possibility, right? Some of us sit here today and we have, we have our family with us. 
And what, a, what an amazing opportunity that is to build a fellowship with one another, to be able to talk about the things of God when you're at home and when you're, when you're doing things around your house and you're on a phone call. But we all kind of fit into these different categories. We all struggle with what that looks like from a relationship level. Because I believe what has to be true, yes, the cost of it is worth it because our Lord is our Savior. And, and, and in order for us to be worthy of him, we want to forsake all other desires. Absolutely. But in the same token, there's something that must remain consistent and must stay steady. And that's how we respond in those relationships that are tough. I heard someone preach the other day, and he said, we've got to learn to be an ambidextrous Christian. Right? Ambidextrous, that you can use your left hand and your right hand equally to do things in your life. Some of you can do that in sports, maybe, maybe writing. But when he first said it, I was like, what is he talking about? But the picture that he was trying to show is that when we have these struggles, these relationships, these sufferings, whatever hand we're balancing and juggling them in, and the other hand is the blessings of the Lord, the assurance of our salvation, a hope for a future. We've got to be able to walk forward with both of those things back and forth. Because they always exist. They always exist. Yeah, they come and they go, they ebb and they flow. Some things are easier at times, some things are harder at other times. But we still walk forward. The gospel is still advanced because of what? A supreme love for Christ in our hearts. And I believe it's shown in our lives and in our walk with our family. Whenever we have that division that has taken place, that struggle that has taken place, do we show them love? Or do we become cynical about their decisions and the things that they do and the way in which they walk? They don't know the Lord. They're going to do exactly what someone does that doesn't know the Lord. They're going to walk contrary to his ways. So don't be a cynic in those situations. Be someone that's compassionate. Be someone that sees them right forward. How are you going to evangelize them for Christ if you're not able to interact? How are you going to be able to meet them at the very place of their, of their depravity, the fact that they need the gospel preached to them if, we have, if we've shunned them as well? Yeah, you have forsaken them, but yet you have drawn them close with compassion and a desire to share the gospel with them. You see, that, you see what Jesus is saying there? Yes, I'm first. I'm supreme. And if you have any hope of being able to testify that to them, it's going to be through me, not through you. The other side of the coin there is that if that cost is too high, then Christ is forsaken. In Luke 9, 59, he says to another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And you say, man, that's kind of tough. The man just wants to bury his parents. But that's not what was going on there. What was going on there is that he wanted to wait around. His parents have not died, best we can tell, but he's waiting around for an inheritance. That's what was, he was, he was motivated by what he was going to get upon the leaving of his parents. It wasn't that he couldn't go bury his parents. That's not what Jesus was getting at. What he was revealing is what? The heart's motive of what he desired and what he was trying to ultimately get to. It was self. It was self-worth. It was self-gratifying. He wasn't able to forsake all that was going before him. I also think of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. That guy gets talked about a lot. 
right? Because he says, Lord, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus ultimately says, follow me and forsake all that you have. Leave all behind. And what does he do? He walks away, unable, unable to do so because he had made those things more important. He did not have a supreme love for Christ, therefore not able to forsake the things of this world. It says there in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's all too easy sometimes to just have some mere words, a profession of faith, a moment of, a moment of excitement or a moment of upwelling of emotion where we say, yes, I'm going to follow Christ. But then the question always is, do you walk it out? Is it evident in your walk? Is it evident in your day-to-day interactions? And if it's not, back up. Maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe you don't love God and Jesus equally. Maybe he's not the savior ultimately of your life. It's your focus on having a supreme love for Christ, because Jesus gives us some stiff words here in Luke fourteen thirty three, He says, so therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's pretty straightforward, right? First Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. Accursed, the root word there is anathema. And it is a strong, strong word of opposition to Christ. Accursed. Think about that. If you have no love for the Lord, you're accursed. A supreme love for Christ is essential. A supreme love for Christ exposes sin. A supreme love for Christ allows us to forsake all other desires. But lastly, and I believe a real test of our faith, is that a supreme love for Christ reflects in loving others. A supreme love for Christ reflects in loving others. Let's pick back up in the text with that greatest command in verse 39. And it says in second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what I think's amazing about this is the Pharisees didn't ask, what's the greatest and the second greatest? Jesus just gives it to them. It's like bonus. He's like, the first is me, but the second is one to another, to love one another. Now, he's not saying right here this, this idea of you just need to love yourself. That's not what he's ultimately trying to get at. The first one where he says to, to love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul is representative of the first four commandments. The first four commandments of the Ten Commandments speak to vertical in nature, our relationship with God. But what he's speaking about here is the final six verses that speak man to man, the horizontal relationships in life. So that's why this is the greatest command, one and two, because it covers all of the commandments. Love God, love people. We walk out those two things against that is what? There is no law because we've walked perfectly in the love of Christ. A supreme love for Christ is evident in all that we ultimately do. 
So why is the standard love as you love yourself? That's a little bit odd in some ways, right? Because first of all, he's not saying that you just need to love yourself more. That's not the picture. There's an assumption that you already love yourself. Right? Do, I mean, I realize we can argue maybe some psychology. But you all feed yourself every day. You clothe yourself. You keep yourself warm. You keep yourself cool. You go to the doctor. You do all these different things. So you clearly have a love for yourself because you do for yourself. And you desire for yourself to go forward. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. You should please eat. Please drink. Please, please get dressed. Please do those things. Right? So that's not what Jesus is getting there. He's saying you love yourself. You take care of yourself. So now what does that look like with other people? Do you love for other people the same way in which you love yourself? Do you take care of other people in the way in which you take care of yourself? Do you do the things for everyone else that you do for yourself? Right? Some of us at different times, yes. Other times, no, right? Ephesians 5.29 even says, gives us a little more on that. It says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Just as Christ does the church. James 2.16. This was a section that Tina mentioned this morning about being a doer of the word. But in verse 16, he says, And one says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things they needed for the body. What good is that? I mean, like if Vernon Tito would have went all the way to Kentucky, although it would have been nice, and all they did was talk to those people, say they're going to pray with them, but didn't meet any of their needs, why would we do that? We clearly want to show a tangible way in which the love for Christ and the way in which we love ourselves by the way in which we love other people. It comes through care. It comes through how we ultimately walk that out. But there's two things we got to remember as we've gone through this. We can only love others because what? Christ first loved us. Right? First John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. Because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life, you are able to be empowered. You're able to walk in the Spirit and love according to the way that Christ loves and secondly, we can only love others, secondly, because we first loved Christ. You see the progression? Christ first loves us. We respond back with a supreme love for Christ, which then allows us to have a love for one another. That's the progression. That's how it works. That's how we, that's how we walk it out. That's why we love before we obey. Ask yourself some questions. Do you love your wife? But what do you do for her? Would she say you love her? Would your children say you love her? Do you love your children? What would they say one for another? I heard someone say, if you're not able to walk that out in those very closest relationships and show love, you don't just need to try harder. You got a worship problem. You got a worship of self problem rather than a worship of God. Because if we have a supreme love for Christ, if our worship and our glory goes to God, then we have no other option but to respond with love to those that are around us. And in a relationship, speak the very most. That's where it's shown. If you're not doing it there, you're not doing it. A supreme love for Christ is reflected in our relationships with others. We see it in Scripture over and over again. 
as true believers, and I believe this to be so true, it was so profound when I heard it put like this, is that we cannot see people as obstacles. We're not obstacles for one another. We're not trying to figure out how to get around, how to jump over to get to your end goal. It's not an obstacle course. A true believer in an obstacle course of people stops at every one of those obstacles and learns about it and talks about it and thinks about it and talks with them and figures it out, brings that care, brings that love, whatever that looks like, then on to the next. Because at that point, they don't become obstacles. What they become is opportunities for ministry. They become opportunities to share the love of Christ that Christ has first done in our lives. It's so easy in our lives to see people as obstacles. We've all got our goals. We've all got our day-to-day things. And I think about it all the time. How many times do we blow through our day, whatever that could look like, and it could be as innocent as be as possible, and miss a whole day and a whole opportunity of sharing Christ? Because I got to get somewhere. I got to do something. I don't like the way they think. I don't like the way they believe. You don't understand. They always mess it up. So does that now become an excuse for us to not reflect the Christ that we say is in us? Of course not. Months ago, actually it would have been weeks ago, when Pastor Ben preached on the seven churches and we talked about Ephesus. It was the first one there. It was just something that just grabbed my heart with that story, with that message of the Lord to his church. And I think it's applicable for us here today. It'll be applicable for us the rest of our lives, ultimately. Because if you look back in history just a little bit further, in Ephesians 6, 24, Paul's writing his letter to the Ephesian church, and he ends as he ends all of his epistles. But this one was slightly different. He says, grace be with you. So that's that's common for him. But he says, all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love uncorruptible. It's a, great, it's a great close for them. It's a great picture of where they were at church. That they had a love that was uncorruptible for Christ. That it was supreme in that church. But fast forward about 30, 40 years. In John's message in Revelation 2, 4 through 5. He says, but I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. They had abandoned. They had forsaken their first love. They were getting all the other things right. They loved scripture. They loved sound teaching. They loved sound doctrine. They desired to be holy in their walks. And they were doing all those things well, but what, is it, but what does the Lord of the church say? You lost your first love. What happened in that span of 30 to 40 years? What happened in that generation of time that took place? Well, they lost a supreme love for Christ. They lost the fact of responding to that and forsaking sinfulness and walking contrary to that. They ultimately lost forsaking things for Christ and one for another. I'm sure there was pictures of it, but a supreme love for Christ was gone. Scripture all throughout tells us that that has to be our focus as a body. That has to be our focus as a church, that we would focus on Christ. 
that our love would be laser pointed towards him. And then all those other things will take place. First love Christ, then obey his commands. You know, I think about what happened there at that church at Ephesus. And my prayer is that that will not happen to us. That will not happen to other churches in our area that claim the name of Christ. That they will make a love for Christ supreme. That he will be essential in our walks. He'll be quick to respond from sin. At the beginning, we look to answer the question, what does it mean to have a supreme love for Christ? How do we apply that? Scripture is abundantly clear. Abundantly clear what it looks like and what it should mean for us to walk according to his ways. To love him with a supreme love. To desire holiness. To walk contrary. To love others well. Think of the relationships that you have. And I would encourage you today, go to those people, repent. Say you're sorry. Start in a place where you can begin to walk out who Christ is in your life. And as we close, I want to look at Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. I want to use it as a prayer for us as we leave here today. And it says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. God, that is our prayer. God, that is our heart. God, that we would walk more and more like you, more and more according to your ways. But God, let us never leave or forsake a supreme love for you as the savior of the world, as the God-man. And as you walk this earth, and as we see you throughout the Bible, God, may our love for you grow deeper and deeper. God, as we go into 2022, God, as we even begin to look at you through the gospel of John, and I pray, Father, that we would see you differently than we've ever seen you before. And that we would see, Father, just as John says there, God, that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And God, that our relationships one with another, God, will reflect that of a supreme love that we have for you. God, convict our hearts. God, expose the sin in our lives in this way. God, help us to forsake all other desires, God, so that we would be worthy of you. And God, that our walks, Father, would be reflected one with another. God, you've been so good. God, you're always faithful. God, no matter what we go through, no matter what we do, God, no matter what the year of 2022 has for us, God, you're good. And you're loving. And you've already gone before us. And God, I pray, Father, that we would leave here with a deeper love for you and a deeper love for one another. God, it's in your name we pray. Amen. I love you. Thank you for a great year. Make sure you come back next week.